If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Content production, Will Erskine. In the newsroom, Dinah Weeks and Dave Woodard. You gotta love playoff hockey. It's also a great distraction from this show. Here's Scott! Oh my, Scott Thompson! Uh, Oh man, there you go. Um, Blew it right rear on that one, I think. Yeah, yeah, you take a bow. Oh, no comment. All right, good afternoon. It is 3.08. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, That is the beaches. Uh, Want what you got. In town tonight, Hamilton Place, rescheduled show from earlier on. There you go, a little concert sneak preview for you. The beach, man, we could go today. It's certainly warm enough. Tomorrow, Friday the 13th, Port Dover. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Certainly uh, starting to feel a little bit. Like summer. Here's hoping, right? All right, we've got a uh, jam-packed show. Uh, Matt Taylor is on the board in the newsroom. Diana and Dave jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221. Star 9900 on your cell. No, I'm still here. So uh, anyway, lots to talk about today. And I guess the big thing, uh, well, let's start with internationally. Uh, Finland uh, wants to be uh, part of NATO. So uh, Putin's not too happy about that because it borders right up against Russia. There's no buffer state per se. Uh, Also, uh, we also know Leafs tonight, man, going to be another big one. Uh, at uh, Tampa Bay tonight, 7.30, Lease ahead in that series, 3-2. to two. Uh, Also, locally, some issues around the 4.06. If you're traveling down by St. Catharines, be aware of that. And the other big traffic news is uh, two-way traffic coming to Main Street. Man, how long have we been talking about this? It's, uh, it, it's amazing when you stop to ponder it. But when did this all start? October. October of 1956, in the Hammer. Uh, they started with uh, 43K of street changed to one way. And people were in favor. I think it was like three to one. And the reason being was the industrial core was, mm, I don't know how many times the size it is now. So a lot of people coming and going, a lot of people uh, living in the area, as well as, again, huge, huge industry. So uh, obviously when the shifts uh, got off, and the traffic started to build into the downtown core. They needed a way out. And, and, and that's really the origin of all of this. It was to get people, um, you know, out of the industrial core and back home again as, as quickly as, as they could. And obviously things are much different now. For one size, for one reason, the industrial core isn't as large as it once was. And obviously the makeup of the city has changed a, a great deal since, uh, 1956. Uh, and again, when you think about it, that's the height of the beginning of the automobile, you know, in, in, a, in a post-World War era. But uh, to look back at some of the cool history, 1924, they started implementing one-way streets. Uh, by 51, there was a subcommittee to study all of this. And by April 1956, there was a traffic plan and uh, a whole uh, series of streets that were going to be changed over. And then on uh, June 7, 56, council voted in principle to adopt the one-way system. And then, of course, uh, we know what happened from there. And by the late 90s, discussions began in earnest about 
going the other way and in reversing this trend. So fascinating where we have come with this in our city and showing you how much the city has changed over the years. And as a result of this, um, you know, obviously the needs and wants of the residents have changed. And we all know that uh, if you're down there and you hit a green, off you go. It all of a sudden, you go from zero to 60 in no time. And, you know, not only the safety factor, which is, of course, the most important thing, but, you know, it's just not needed the same way that it was back in the day, three o'clock, four o'clock, when the whistle blew, five o'clock, whatever, um, there was a mad dash. And, you know, all these shifts, I'm sure, altered, staggered in order to get workers out of the downtown core as quickly as possible. Obviously, now it's the reverse. We're trying to develop, or the no, we're trying anymore. It's happening. The downtown core is is developing, uh, becoming more residential uh, again, and and you know a, a, a completely different city is forming than was here in 1956. So you can certainly see the need for this discussion and eventually the outcome that we're seeing. So uh, I, I think, again, I remember being here in the 90s and having this discussion and, and driving the road uh, for the very first time way back when, when I came to Hamilton. And, you know, you can see, yep, I, I, I get why this was here, and I can also completely understand why there isn't really a need for it now. It's it's a different situation. It's a different city. So fascinating to see how this will move forward and very much a transitional period for Hamilton, not only when it comes to something like this, but also LRT on the way and just the great economic boom that this city has, is seeing and has seen over the, the last, uh, say, five to ten years. Uh, remember when it was hard to find uh, restaurants other than the others, you know, standard six or so great restaurants that have been here forever. And now, my goodness, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, where do you want to go? So, uh, again, cities transforming, cities changing, and that's why we're seeing what we're seeing. But incidentally, finally, this is kind of funny because the poll question of the day is, are you, uh, do you want, uh, Maine to be a two way street? And right now it's pretty much split 51% saying yes, 49% saying no. So you probably take that and, you know, you look at the results five minutes from now and it'll be swayed the other way. So, again, right down the middle, which usually means, um, you know, people don't like change. People are, are having a hard time perhaps understanding why this is all going on. So a new city is forming. A, certainly a new downtown is forming. And uh, I honestly believe uh, this is part of it. And certainly the issues in and around traffic and, 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 and the pedestrian accidents that have been happening and such, I mean, it's 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 clear that there are issues here and it's just um it's it's a race course it really is it's it's really uh gone beyond what it should have been all right so uh we'll talk about that coming up a little later on also uh speaking of food and restaurants so hungry food truck festival back on ottawa street this weekend we're going to talk about that coming up in a little bit also going to talk about the ontario leadership campaign and where we are when it comes to transit and infrastructure and such and bimbrook the rib fest is back which is great because all of these events are starting up again and as we mentioned earlier uh looks like finland is going to join nato or certainly wants to be a part of it and this has uh russia very upset as it borders uh, a good part of their country we're going to have those conversations coming up a little later on too what matters
matters to you, what matters to Hamilton, matters to Scott. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. It is 320. I'm Scott Thompson. Matt Taylor on the board in the newsroom. Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221. Star 9900 on your cell. Uh, food trucks. Remember uh, when <laughs> Remember when they used to be everywhere and pre-pandemic it was the great thing? But there was also, um, you know, a little bit of debate and a little bit of, of discussion about where they were welcome and when they weren't welcome. Uh, whereas, you know, now the, uh, end of the pandemic, man, people are just anywhere, anywhere, please, let's, let's do anything. And of course, we talked yesterday with the, uh, Burlington downtown BIA. They're having some issues with theirs. Not the case here in the hammer. We let her happen. We make it happen. And it's going to happen on Ottawa Street this Saturday. The So Hungry Food Truck Festival is back after a hiatus, uh, for obvious reasons. Ottawa Street's going to be rocking this weekend. Let's bring in Chelsea Braley, event coordinator, Ottawa Street. Street BIA and with us now. Chelsea, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, I'm very good. Thank you. Just super busy. I can imagine, especially uh, heading into this weekend. So first off the top, give us all the details, the logistics, when, where, what, times, all that sort of thing. Okay. So the event is this Saturday, May 14th, 11 to 8. It's all along Ottawa Street North. The road will be shut down. Um, We have 25, 25 food trucks lined up, which is exciting. But we also have a stage with a whole lineup of bands you can watch. And if you want to check out the lineup, it's on Facebook. Um, All our shops and restaurants should be participating as well. There's an activity zone that will have lots of things to do for everyone, including the kids. And of course, we have our beer garden coming back for the 19 plus crowd. So uh, obviously, it's been a couple of years. So I'm I'm thinking people are kind of hankering at the bit for this. Uh, I guess there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of positive response for this weekend. People are excited about this. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think everyone's so ready to get back out there. And of course, the festival's outside too, which is great. And the weather so far is looking wonderful. So let's mm. hope it stays that way. So uh, as far, can you give us any ideas? Uh, you know, we were talking about food trucks the other day, and can you give us sort of a, just an example of, of the, the span of stuff? I don't want you to go through all 25, but, <laughs> you, you know, you've got this, that, to the other. What sort of stuff can we, can, can we expect? Because obviously the food truck has gone uh, a long way from the hamburger and the hot dog. Yes, it definitely has. I mean, in a way, it's almost like, what won't we have? But just to mm. give, like, a bit of an idea, we've got everything from Mexican, Greek, we have Dutch, we got barbecue, Canadian, and then desserts, Italian, pretty much anything you can think of. We probably have it or some form of it. And that also includes our restaurants too, right? So what edition of the of the food, uh, So Hungry Food Truck Festival is this? Because obviously it's been off for a while. How many had you had prior to pandemic? Right. So the Food Truck Festival actually started in 2013, and we've had one every year up until 2019. And then it was the only time we took a break was during COVID, and now we're back. So what has this done for the street and and what's the advantage to doing this? Um, The advantage of the event? Yes. Would be like just we're hoping to bring people back out to get back out there. We also want people to discover Ottawa Street too. Like although the festival's one day, Ottawa Street is open all year round. And we have so many great businesses and shops and 
restaurants for you to try. So even when the festival's not going on, we hope that you can explore some of Ottawa Street too and just learn what's happening in the north end of Hamilton down here. So obviously, Chelsea, this idea is not only to get everybody out and have a nice festival on Ottawa Street, but it's to draw attention to what is going on and how Ottawa Street is changing and what it has to offer the businesses and such. Absolutely, definitely. So is there any blowback for this sort of thing? And the reason I'm saying that is because we remember when food trucks first started, they've been around for a while, and Hamilton was very much at the cutting edge of, of this industry when it started uh, and, and such. And, and people were upset where they could go or where they couldn't go. Uh, we were just talking to, uh, you know, and I don't want you to comment on other towns. I understand okay. that. But, but the issue, and I'm not going to question you here on that. But, <laughs> you know, obviously Burlington has having some issues with theirs yes. that's coming up in July. And, and some people, some restaurants are trying to, like, they want to move, basically. So has there been any blowback? Has there been anything negative about this over the years? Um, absolutely not. I mean, I haven't done all the years myself, but I know this year we've had nothing go wrong that way. Everyone's super excited. Everybody is working together to make sure it happens. Like, there's not really even anything holding us back, especially in terms of the food trucks. Like, there's no problems that way for Hamilton. So, so you were talking about how, you know, uh, the other businesses obviously going to come out onto the sidewalk, uh, restaurants too. So what's, what are some of the bricks and mortar restaurants doing that are, you know, to get involved in this? Because I think that's where some of the issue is uh, across the bay there. So how are they embracing oh, okay. this and, and how are they embracing this and, and, and you know, taking, this, uh, taking advantage of the people that are coming to the event? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, we have... For instance, we have some restaurants setting up outside, uh, like Murray's Butcher does a stand yeah. outside where they offer their own food. Same with Hammerhead. They have their own stand outside of their establishment that offers their own food. Um, mm -hmm. And then a lot of our like restaurants now have patios up because it's becoming yeah. that time of year. So the patios will also be open that if you want to take a seat and have a drink or a meal, you can sit on some of the patios too that are part of the restaurants. How many people are you expecting, especially since there hasn't been one for a couple of years? Oh my gosh, I know. Everyone keeps asking me that. I mean, <laughs> it's either going to go two ways, right? People are either going to be like, like it'll be smaller or it's going to be like the complete office and everyone's going to be super excited and come out. So I, I'm hoping it's the second one. <laughs> Well, um, you know, I think you said it could go one of two ways. Yeah, I'd say either direction down the street is what you're probably going to see. I, I yeah. bet you might even have to expand it next year. Who knows? Oh, absolutely. I think like this one is probably it might be considered just a bit smaller from previous years. I know the food truck industry did get hit really hard from yeah. COVID. Yeah. So I'm, I wouldn't like this event. It's a bit different just because of COVID. I would say this is like our we're kind of dipping our toes back in. And then next year, we hope it's be even bigger and better. All right, so once again, give us all the ifs, the, uh, whens, wheres, and whats, and uh, a brief description of what they can expect when they come down on Saturday. Absolutely. So Saturday, it's Ottawa Street North, um, 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. Um, there's 25 food trucks lined up. Our shops will be open, so will our restaurants and their patios. Um, we have a stage with a great lineup of bands. Um, there's an activity zone as well that has activities for all ages, especially like especially the kids as well. We want to get them out there. And we have a beer garden for the 19 plus crowd. All right. Uh, welcome back. The So Hungry Food Thank Truck you. Festival back on Ottawa Street uh, this weekend, this Saturday from 11 until 8. Chase, uh, Chelsea Braley with us, event coordinator of the Ottawa Street BIA. Good luck, Chelsea. Have fun. Thank you. Bring your stretchy pants. <laughs> 327. It is 335. I'm Scott Thompson.
Matt Taylor on the board in the cloud, Will Erskine, and in the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Jump into the conversation. We love it when you take uh, advantage of this situation and get it off your chest. Lots of ways to do that. Last word at the end of the show. You can ride shotgun with us. You can send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. Love to hear from you. A uh, lot still to come on the show, including uh, the Bimbrook Rib Fest is back. Uh, Bimbrook, uh, Bimbrook Rib and Beer Fest uh, coming back. That's a great thing, man. I mean, two years of, of being cooped up in a pandemic, and finally we're starting to uh, see some some movement, some some people getting out and spreading their wings. It was you know great a few months ago when we were giving away concert tickets for this summer. It's like, man, how long has it been since I've done that? All right. Uh, we obviously know that there's an election campaign underway, the election coming up uh, June Second here in Ontario, Ontario provincial leadership campaign. Strong focus on infrastructure, highways, transit. And many people are going, it's about freaking time. Like, honestly, uh, five, why weren't we doing this? And here's the interesting thing. It seems like all three major parties have a position on this or some sort of plan, realizing that there is a problem when it comes to housing, uh, transportation, infrastructure, roads, bridges, what have you. Uh, and again, I remember Dalton McGinty saying years ago, we're not interested in building any more uh, roads. Well, unfortunately, we haven't built anything. And now everybody's saying, you know, I think we should maybe build something here. Uh, again, where were they 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago? Let's bring in Aaron Woodrick, director at the, or director of the McDonald Laurie Institute's domestic policy program. He is with us now. Aaron, good to talk to you. Hope you're well. Yeah, very well, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing good. So have we finally changed our attitude in, in Ontario? Cause it seemed for the longest time for a couple of decades, build was a bad word. Yeah, you know, I don't know if the, the attitude towards building has changed so much as what we're building, right? Um, I think for a long time, it, it, you know, some governments really sort of went all in on public transit. That's great if you live in a big city and uh, you live downtown and you you want more transit. For a lot of other folks who live in suburbia, it was about roads, right? They wanted highways, roads. So there's been some subtle shifts in sort of what we're spending on. But, you know, you asked the question earlier, why are we doing this now? I think it is, uh, Scott, is that it won't come as a surprise to a lot of people. Sometimes governments don't keep the promises that they make. Hmm. And uh, in a lot of cases, they had big plans to build things, whether it's hospitals or schools. Um, there wasn't enough money or there were other priorities. And so um, over time, the, the need for these things becomes clearer and clearer. And I think we sort of hit a bottleneck. And now there's this sort of um, uh, race to see who can promise to build the most stuff in the shortest amount of time. You know, many will say uh, if you build a highway, then you know what's going to happen. They're going to build stuff around it and it's going to develop. There's going to be houses. But we need immigrants to, to fill jobs in, in, in this country. We are, we are a growing country. Where do we put them if we don't do that? I think that's a great question and a very important point. Uh, and, you know, I also think it spills over into other touchier issues about, you know, immigration. Uh, I think that the support for immigration is most secure when people can feel that we can welcome immigrants here. They can integrate. They have a place to live. They're not fighting with uh, Canadians who are already here over a low stock of housing, that they're not uh, taking up spaces in, in places like uh, schools, um, you know, because we don't have enough of them. So I think it's a good thing um, to, to build enough so that we have the capacity, not only for the people who are here now, but for the people that we want to welcome. 
What do we need? What's the smart way to do this? Because again, no, nobody's saying just go hog wild and you know mow over everything. But how do we build like a a smart sm- uh, spoken hub transit system with satellite uh, communities and and just build smart cities? I mean, is it that difficult, Aaron? Uh, it, it is not as simple as you might think for the simple reason yeah. that you're doing a bit of guesswork, right? Uh, when we talk about transit in particular, the first thing you have to balance is the reality that some people don't live in places where transit is going to be economical, right? If you live in a big city, Toronto, Waterham, Hamilton, Kitchener, London, uh, you know, mass transit uh, might make more sense. In a lot of smaller cities, it doesn't. So you have to balance the interests of those different types of communities. The other thing is sort of predicting the future in terms of what we would like people to do versus what they do today. I mean, the reality is a lot of us would like to, you know, for the benefit of the environment, uh, not have to drive as much, right? But Mm -hmm. um, is that realistic to believe that we're going to be able to make that transition as quick as we'd like? Uh, The other thing, too, is we're not even looking at things like um, autonomous driving and uh, electric vehicles, right? Like the argument 20 years ago for mass transit was it's better for the environment and it saves time. Well, if you go forward 20, 30 years from now, if there are autonomous green vehicles driving around, you may have solved a few of those problems and the demand for public transit might actually be less. So there is a bit of of um, guesswork going on here. These things take a long time to build, and so governments kind of have to try and guess as best they can as to what's the best way to spend the money. So how do we do this? And I know you don't have a crystal ball, Aaron, but in, in with what you're dealing with in, in your world, what is what should we be looking at? How do we move forward and build a smarter Ontario? How do we? What are the next steps for us? Well, I think the first thing is we can't deny the demand for driving. I think that uh, in spite of I'm not someone who, who drives as much, I drive as little as I can. But the reality is a lot of people rely on cars, and they're going to rely on cars for the foreseeable future. So that means we are going to have to build some more highways. The other thing I'd say, especially with respect to public transit, is we need to wait a little bit to see what the fallout from the pandemic is in terms of commuting patterns, right? For a long time, it was just assumed that in most major cities, people drive downtown to the office five days a week. I don't think that world's coming back. A lot of people don't think that world's ever coming back. It's going to be a mix of remote and uh, in-office work. And that has implications for the transit that we build, where we build it, what the patterns are, how much we invest in it. So I think, um, you know, the dumbest thing we could do is to sort of proceed as if nothing had changed as a result of the pandemic because i think you'd be working on plans that are just outdated before the stuff has even been built well again and here now that leads us to the housing issue and apparently there's only one way to build and that's up and that's infield uh development which of course nimbyism none of that's really happened to the extent that it's solving any of the problem so um you know again how how does this relate to housing because the pandemic and people don't want to be stacked up like uh cordwood anymore they want some space yeah, I, I think this is an even bigger issue than transit. Um, and so, I mean, the problem we've seen with housing is we like density because it's better for the environment. But the problem, Scott, is a lot of families, they don't want to live in a condo. They want space yeah. for their family and their kid. That's why you've seen green belts around the GTA, around Ottawa. The idea was you build this green belt, it'll force density. But the reality is people just went outside the green belt to, to, to buy a, a detached home and then they'd commute. And that's actually worse for the environment. So I think you need to acknowledge that there's always going to be a demand for a certain type of of housing you're going to have to be flexible that doesn't mean you throw out all the density plans what you do have to recognize for a lot of people um they're willing to actually sacrifice a lot just to have that space and that's going to have to be part of any sort of uh, long-term planning when it comes to building housing 
Uh, and sorry to jump around like this, but going back to our EV discussion, I mean, you're thinking where Ontario is as far as EV production, the plants that they've announced that are going to be retooled, at least three of them, uh, going up and developing the minerals so they can make the batteries and, and be, you know, a whole part of the food chain here. How do environmentalists and those that are into, uh, you know, are against urban sprawl of any kind, how are they going to balance the environmental discussion with the housing or, you know, the need for roads? Because as you said, we're just going to re- be replacing our fleet with EVs. So that's, you're still going to need infrastructure for that. Yeah, well, I think I think most realistic environmentalists, I think most of us, you know, obviously want a clean environment and are concerned mm-hmm. about climate change. The, the, the reality is um, when costs start to collide with those things, the public will simply not stand for um, absurd costs. You see the concern of people when housing goes through the roof, when gas prices rise. Um, you know, if you start to constrain things to the point where it becomes life becomes unlivable for most regular people, I think that uh, I, I think that we all lose. So I, I think it's important for people to say, yes, we need to sort of transition, but that's going to take time. Um, and that means that we're going to have to, you know, make provision uh, for things that we, you know, in a perfect world, we'd be able to snap our fingers and have them disappear. So I, I, I actually don't think there's any contradiction. I think it's just about having a realistic expectation about what's possible and sort of how quickly we can get to, uh, to our sort of environmental goals. And, you know, uh, Aaron, as we've talked many times, it's not about extremes. It's about a mix of all of this, uh, whether it's uh, anything. I mean, there is no one golden solution here. And, and certainly if there is, we don't have it now. No, and people love magic bullets, right? We love to think yeah. that there's an easy plan and we can tick the box, but this stuff is complicated. It is going to take a while. We're going in the right direction, but uh, I think some people need to realize that it's it's not going to be a straight line. There'll be sort of sometimes two steps forward, one step back. But uh, the world is uh, the world is getting cleaner. But uh, we have to sort of we have to live in the meantime while we get there. Aaron Woodrick with us, director of the McDonald-Laurie Institute's Domestic Policy Program, talking about all parties uh, and infrastructure. Now uh, they realize there's a deficit, and how do you fix that? Uh, Aaron, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. It is 3.50. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Matt Taylor. Matt Taylor in behind the board and in the newsroom. Diana and Dave. Jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221. Star 9900 on your cell. Uh, Going to be a beauty weekend in the hammer. Beauty weekend for uh, Friday the 13th tomorrow in uh, Port Dover. Man. And uh, I think we're going to get about Saturday in, and then it starts to get a little uh, starts to get a little funny. But uh, uh, the first part in the early part of the weekend looking pretty good. And if you're heading out and about, it's a great weekend to be doing it. And as we mentioned with the uh, So Hungry Food Truck Fest on Ottawa Street, uh, another event is back, and that's the Bimbrook Rib and Beer Fest. Oh, yeah. And uh, the Bimbrook Rib and Fair uh, and Rib Fest is back, and their season is just getting started to talk more about all of this talia uh, talia quilliam is with us representative for northern heat rib series and is with us talia thanks for the time i hope you're well hey thank you so much for having me we're so excited to start our tour right in the heart of Binbrook. so hang on let's talk about this tour what is the northern heat uh, rib series all about so we are actually north america's largest rib fest tour 
Um, we have over 18 shows this summer, traveling all across southern Ontario. And uh, funny enough, we have about four shows in Hamilton this summer. So we're super stoked to uh, bring Ribfest back. So let's talk about what's going on in Bimbrook this weekend. Yes, so we are here from May 13th to the 15th. Um, we have our obviously our rib um, fest happening and some incredible vendors. We've got live music all weekend long. It's a pet-friendly event. It's great for the whole family. So, I mean, if you want to take advantage of some incredible weather, then definitely heading down to uh, our rib fest is the way to go. And tell everybody where it's happening. It is happening at the Binbrook Fairview Grounds, the country fair. Oh my gosh, sorry, the Binbrook Country Fairgrounds, and uh, yeah, we'll be there all weekend long. And so, how many rivers are going to be there? Any idea? We've got four rigs on site. Uh, we've got Kentucky, Louisiana, Big Hank's Barbecue, and Open Barrel. All different flavors. So we're gonna have we're gonna be having a uh, rib competition at the end that will be judged, and whoever gets the title wins the battle of the rigs for this weekend. And where are these rivers from? Are they from all over? Are they local? So they're from Kentucky, Louisiana, um, that I know for sure, and all over North America. So how do you explain the phenomena of the rib fest? Because I remember when, you know, these started maybe 20 years ago or so. And, uh, and you know, there's a huge one in, in Burlington every year at Spencer Smith. And, and I remember talking to the people when it started and it was brand new and they weren't sure if it was going to work or not. Why do you think this is so successful? You know, it's an outdoor event. It's amazing for families and it's free entry, so anyone who wants to just enjoy themselves, it's a great opportunity to be able to spend time with those that you love in a very positive, uplifting environment while enjoying incredible food, great vibes, the sun. It's just a win-win for everybody. So you've got the uh, the rigs up there doing the ribs. What else is up there this weekend? We've got some incredible vendors happening um, from Bloom and Onion. We've got Jolly Rancher Slushies, Route 66. Uh, there will be different vendors at every single event. So we're super excited to be hosting some local vendors. Um, some, some of the vendors will be traveling with us all summer long. So it'll be great opportunity for everyone to enjoy some local stores and um, yeah. So obviously everybody's been kind of, uh, you know, uh, kind of, uh, I guess, locked up for the last uh, couple of years. What's it like as you start to open these things up again? What's the response been like? I, people must be just chomping at the bit to get a, to get out and, and involved in these events. You know what? We have been receiving such positive and uplifting responses from all of our um, barbecue lovers. And um, it, it's just been amazing feeling the the overflow of joy for us to be putting on our full shows. I don't know if you know this, but last year we uh, only had the opportunity of doing a uh, drive through rib fest. Yeah. So that was, it, it's hard to make connections, but you know, we are back full, full, full shows. We are so excited to get our hands dirty. We just want to make people happy and put smiles back on everyone's faces again. And it's all happening at the Bimbrook Fairgrounds. Once again, give us the times, that sort of thing. 
Yep, Friday from 4 to 11, Saturday from 12 to 11, and Sunday from 12 to 7. All right, this weekend at the Bing, uh, Bimbrook Fairgrounds, the Bimbrook Rib and Beer Fest is back. And my only, uh, my only recommendation, other than bring your appetite, is don't wear white. Talia, why do people wear white to a rib fest? It just doesn't make sense to me. You know, if you're wearing white, maybe you should go buy one of our aprons to protect your outfit. But yeah, I don't recommend. That's a great idea. Pick up a little uh, swag on the way and protect the clothing. Talia, good luck with this uh, moving forward. Have fun. Thank you so much, and hopefully we'll see you there, too. Good afternoon. It is 4.09. I'm Scott Thompson. Matt Taylor spinning the beaches uh, back behind the board. Uh, what uh, Want what you got at Hamilton Place tonight. Uh, the Beach is in town tonight. Rescheduled show. There's a concert sneak preview. Feel free to jump into the fun. We would love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221. Star 9900 on your cell. Uh, what else? Oh, well, lots of stuff going on today. Uh, big news, I guess, locally in the city is uh, two-way traffic, uh, Main Street, coming to an end. It's... Uh, you know, I think we've been talking about this since the 90s. I mean, I can remember back that, you know, when I first came to Hamilton uh, around 1990 and, and, and driving that stretch of road and thinking, this is unusual considering that, you know, and especially around in the early 90s, I mean, Hamilton was a much more desolate place than it is now. Uh, it's incredibly uh, uh, taken off in the last 10 years. We were all waiting for the city to turn the corner, and it has, and it's in full steam. But there was a time when, obviously, um, people started to question whether having one-way streets uh, was worth it. Uh, the whole reason for them, the reason that all the lights are synced, and, and you can get out of Dodge as quickly as you can, is the industrial core used to be a lot bigger than what it is. There used to be a lot more traffic coming in and out of the industrial core. Uh, you know, probably, I'd say, three to four times, five times the amount of people uh, that are now during the heyday. Certainly, of uh, October 28, 1956, is when they opened up 43K of uh, one-way streets in, in downtown Hamilton. So... Again, you you get a whole pile of workers getting off at the same time, or or or, or you know uh, alternating shifts and such. Uh, they want to get them in and out as quickly as possible. Otherwise, it would be chaos. But uh, you know, fortunately, the city has changed. It's come back from uh, the loss of, of of manufacturing and and, and still very much. All of that, a, a big part of Hamilton's identity and Hamilton as a city, but not as much as it was. So, again, do we keep the same uh, the same procedures, the same process uh, that we did back in 1956? And, you know, uh, I would say no. And that's before we got to the point where, you know, we're, we're pointing to all the people who have been hurt or killed or, or what have you on this stretch of road, which is literally like a drag strip when you get... You know all the all the, uh, the the stoplights going green, 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 green in a row, and you know again, I, I think it served its purpose in the mid fifties and in whatever during the height of the industrial core. But I, I'm not sure that it does now when you're trying to build, uh, uh, you know, a street friendly, a pedestrian friendly uh, city, where obviously the 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 residential component of downtown is is going through the roof, just like the the retail, the small retail and and in uh, restaurants and such that are going on, so it's a different place, 
and, than it was back in 1956. And, you know, uh, over and above the safety issues, which, of course, of course, of course, this has to be rectified. Um, but this was something that has been coming for, I believe, an awfully long time. And, you know, that's from a guy that moved here in 1990. So, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, um, when you look at where we are in this pandemic, when you look at where we are moving forward with LRT and such, I, I think it's just a matter of time before it was just a matter of time before something like this uh, has happened. And, you know, I think it's one of those changes right now. The poll question of the day, do you want uh, Main Street into two ways? It's split 50 50. And, you know, you go back in an hour, it'll be 50, 50 the other way, or 50, 41, 59, sorry, 49, 51 the other way. Uh, it, it's going to jump back and forth. And, you know, when you get something that's that close, it almost sounds like an LRT debate, doesn't it? Uh, it well, it really does, because if we were to do that poll question now with the LRT, we'd probably still get a 50-50 split on it. But that being said, looks like uh, the change is going to happen. We're going to talk about that coming up uh, a little later on. Also, uh, tomorrow, Friday the 13th, Port Dover getting ready for uh, a lot of people because it hasn't i think this is the only one this year as well so uh, we'll talk to port dover tomorrow and uh, see what's going on there the big news internationally is finland is uh, moving to join nato uh, sweden not far behind them who of course border uh, russia now uh, russia like to keep what they called buffer states between nato countries and russia uh, Sweden and Finland would have been two of those countries. Another one was Ukraine. And remember when, you know, President Zelensky said, you know what, we're not interested in joining NATO, hoping, hoping that Putin would back off. And of course he didn't. He continues to hammer uh, Ukraine as we speak. So um, now Putin upset that, uh, in fact, NATO is expanding. But they're expanding because Putin has literally driven Finland and and sweden into nato's arms per se so can he be surprised in any way we'll have those discussions coming up uh, next what matters to you what matters to hamilton matters to scott you're listening to hamilton today with scott thompson on hamilton's news today's talk 900 chml scott thompson matt taylor on the board feel free to leave your mark 905-645-3221 star 9900 on your cell send us a note scott thompson at 900 chml.com all right we certainly know about about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I think we're sitting around day 77 of this. Uh, at one time, Putin was all worried that uh, Ukraine was going to join uh, uh, NATO and, and didn't want that. Zelensky said early on, no, no, you know, we're not doing that, hopefully, and hoping that Putin would back off. Clearly, he didn't. And with his aggression, what he's done is pushed other buffer states or neutral states into the arms of NATO, including uh, Sweden and, and, and as well, Finland looking to join, or sorry, Finland looking to join and possibly Sweden. And these were once considered neutral countries. How does Putin sell this when he goes in to take Ukraine, but ends up pushing both these countries into the arms of NATO? Let's bring in Arl Brown, professor, international relations, senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto and is with us now. Oral, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. How uh, how difficult or easy will it be for Finland to join NATO, and is Sweden far behind? The Secretary General of NATO said that Finland could, uh, as well as Sweden, could join almost overnight. Now, of course, it's a somewhat longer process, 
but most likely they could join within a year because they certainly meet all the NATO criteria for membership. And uh, they would be a very major asset. Finland has worked together with Sweden. Sweden is going to make an announcement. So since uh, Finland is moving ahead, uh, I think it's a fairly safe bet to assume that Sweden will follow suit as well. But I think we really need to appreciate just how huge a blow this is to Russia. And we have to kind of contextualize it. Go ahead, uh, because, again, this is not what Putin, I'm sure, has planned when taking uh, Ukraine, that he would you know, push the others into the arms of NATO. How does he sell this uh, to Russia as NATO's invading these countries? Clearly, he pushed them into the arms of those, uh, into the arms of NATO. Well, let me suggest a thought experiment. Let's uh, assume that on the night of the 23rd, before the invasion, Vladimir Putin had a nightmare. Had a nightmare about things really going badly, which he then woke up in the morning and just dismissed. And what would this nightmare have been? Well, the nightmare would have started with the absurd possibility in his mind that Russian military forces would fail, that uh, these forces that had so easily won in Georgia in 2008 in Crimea in 2014, when the ineffective uh, and corrupt uh, uh, forces that Ukraine had at that point just disintegrated, or in Syria in 2015, and he uh, would see in this nightmare that somehow these forces fail, that the Russian army turns out to be a Potemkin army, that uh, the aura of invincibility of the Russian military is shattered. What else would be in this uh, nightmare? Well, it would be that Germany, which had been so pliant, had become so dependent on mm. Russian energy, which had largely disarmed, where one third of the German forces could not even fight. All of a sudden, Germany would uh, take a dramatic 180 degree turn and decide to spend massively on armaments, uh, 100 billion euros, and reach the 2%. Uh, uh, of GDP on spending and provide armaments, including heavy armaments, to Ukraine. What else would he see in this nightmare? Well, he would see that NATO, far from being divided, NATO is united, and they're all engaged in spending more. What else would he see? President Biden, who seemed so weak, an administration that was so timid, all of a sudden gains courage and decides to pump significant and increasingly larger numbers of armaments into uh, Ukraine. And then something really unlikely, that somehow the Nordic states, Sweden and Finland, two neutral states, Finland that had uh, during the poll pursued a policy of what was called Finlandization that deferred basically to Russia, there was a self-limitation of sovereignty, that they would join NATO. This would be a nightmare that he would just dismiss, a bad dream. But this is what he's facing. Hmm. So uh, is he is Putin looking for a way out or is this war in his eyes, even though it's taken him, you know, he, he certainly didn't. It certainly wasn't mission accomplished in Ukraine. He is at war. He is at war in Ukraine. 
and his forces are is he looking for more is he is he looking for more though or is he looking for an off-ramp is he looking for a way out or more it would be very difficult uh, they're making threats against finland and sweden but russian forces have been so decimated and uh, have proven to be so weak and corrupt uh, relatively speaking, I mean, they still have a lot of firepower. They could cause a huge amount of uh, 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 damage, but they have far less capacity than prior to February 24th, the day of the invasion. So his military options against Sweden and against Finland are much more limited now than they would have been prior to the invasion. He may move some nuclear forces around, sable rattle and all that, uh, but... Uh, when you lose countries like Finland and Sweden that have so desperately tried to be friendly to Russia, tried to be accommodating, it tells us something very important, that this uh, accusation that Vladimir Putin made, that this was about NATO enlargement, is false through and through. NATO mm. did not enlarge by recruiting countries. NATO enlarged because countries that bordered Russia, were so badly treated by Russia, so continuously threatened by Russia, that they were driven into the arms of NATO. They desperately sought membership uh, in the alliance. And uh, we saw this in the case of the East European countries, which had been members of the Warsaw Pact. And now we see it in the case of Finland and soon in the case of Sweden. So Russia has agency, but it has misused its power and now it's paying a price. But what is essential at this point is to make sure that what the West has been doing lately, and that is supporting Ukraine, is followed through. That uh, uh, we don't lose it at the last uh, last minute. This is a historic turning point. It is an inflection point. Ukraine could win this conflict unless unless we waver, unless the West begins to lose its unity. All right, let me ask you this, uh, Oral, because uh, uh, we only got a few seconds left. Finland and Sweden, one of the uh, criteria is you got to spend 2% of your GDP. Both Finland, I think Finland's already there. Sweden's very close. What does that say about Canada? We don't have too much time left here. It's an excellent question. Why are we not doing it? We have a huge interest in the Arctic. We have a vast coastline, and Russia's militarized the Arctic. So it is a question that our political leaders ought to answer. All right. Arl Brown with us, Professor of International Relations and Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Fascinating discussion, Arl. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. It is 438. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Matt Taylor on the board. Will Erskine in the cloud in the newsroom. Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. You can send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. The phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221. Start 9900 on your cell. Always looking for your last word. Give Matt a call, and uh, he'll record you and play you uh, the very last voice that we hear as we get rid of uh, another edition of Hamilton today. Feel free. Love to hear from you. All right. we. Oh, I wanted to uh, check earlier um we were talking uh with arl brown in regard to finland and sweden now uh, being pushed into the arms of nato literally from putin who's uh you know blowing the bejeebers out of all of his neighbors it appears so uh finland and sweden who were considered neutral countries have now decided after seeing what's going on with ukraine that they are uh in fact uh, going to join finland and sweden the interesting thing 
is many who talk about Canadians, uh, Canada's military and how it's not what it used to be. Uh, Mel, uh, Minister Jolie saying that we're conveners now, we're not a military power. Well, Finland and Sweden, who uh, are considered neutral countries, uh, really, uh, they have already met their, at least Swe- uh, Finland has, and Sweden will in a few years, have already met their 2% uh, GDP uh, contribution to NATO, which... Canada is now behind Finland and Sweden, and they're not even members of NATO yet when it comes to uh, committing and and, and obviously uh, helping NATO and, and, and doing your share, per se. Finland and Sweden now already there when it comes to their commitment and are hoping to move forward and uh, be within NATO within the year. All right, let's move on. Uh, obviously, uh, we have an issue with gas prices, 222.9 in Vancouver the other day. I think the average price in Canada is now up around $1.97 a liter from east to west or west to east. And, and obviously, we have an incredible demand and very little supply. So moving forward, what do we do? If you've, you know, we're coming out of a global pandemic, many people People were looking forward to traveling, getting out and about. Even if you go out and go to a restaurant, you'll notice things are way more expensive, as well as the grocery store and everything else. So if you were planning to get away this summer, what do you do with gas prices going through the roof, literally doubling what they were uh, you know, at the beginning of this uh, pandemic? Well, there are a couple of things you can do to somehow reduce your gas bills. So says Teresa DeFelice, Assistant Vice President, Government and Community Relations for the CAA South Central Ontario and is with us now. Uh, Teresa, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, thank you, Matt. Good to be here. So it's Scott. Uh, so uh, sorry, Scott. <laughs> that's okay, Teresa. So um, are there things right off the bat that, that drivers or motorists can do in order to put a little bit of a dent in these bills? Yeah, you know, some of the biggest things that impact your, you know, how much gas you use um, are really simple things that uh, people can control, like not idling when they're stopped waiting, uh, you know, for someone if they're picking somebody up or in order to cool down their car by, you know, the AC, Mm -hmm. um, you know, those things that we're running your car to do those functions are going to use a lot of gas. Or if you're waiting for someone, turn it off. You're not going to hurt your car by turning it off and turning it on uh, in in short order. So, you know, idling is one of the big ones. Um, I would also say reducing air conditioner use. So, you know, we like to have, you know, it's hot now. We've got Mm -hmm. all this warm weather. But if you can cool down your car first by putting down the windows and, and letting some of that hot air and actually then slowly bringing up your AC uh, to a comfortable temperature, especially if you're going to be on the highway, it makes more sense to use your air conditioner uh, versus, you know, driving around in lower temperature, uh, lower kilometer speeds. Um, you know, easy use on your air conditioner will help save you some, some uh, money as well. Is there any way to try to time gas prices? Is there a day of the week that's better to buy? I mean, I've noticed, I don't know if this is just anecdotal, but like on a Tuesday, you're sort of after the weekend rush before the other weekend rush. Although with gas prices now, they're going up several times a week by several cents a liter. So I'm not sure if there's anything to that now or not. But is there is is there anything there? Well, you know, I think it's important to remember that some of the fluctuations in gas prices are happening based on world events and yeah. sort of the supply demand issues that that impact that over time. Um, and so, you know, we're not going to have a lot of control. I think there's a lot of good work being done to highlight uh, some of the predictions saying gas is going to go down. So people listen in for that. 
knowing what the gas prices normally are in some of your favorite stations, um, you know, that might help sort of give you an idea. Try not to run on empty, uh, you know, allows you some flexibility to get a little bit further until you find the right gas price that works uh, that you want to tap into, you know, letting your car go right down to, to empty is not a good idea for a lot of reasons. Uh, it's not good for your car. And secondly, you don't want to be, you know, out of gas in a very unsafe situation. So it's kind of like you know, shopping for the, it's like shopping for the best deal at a grocery store. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the other thing that we're, you know, CAA actually just announced earlier this year uh, that if you're a member of CAA, you get three cents off a liter at Shell. And, and so, you know, looking at your loyalty programs or your member benefits, if you're a member of an organization like CAA or some others that offer some of those loyalty programs, uh, maybe it's not a direct savings like the Shell deal for, for CAA members. Maybe it's, um, you know, using those programs, but it saves you elsewhere, like on groceries or, or some other um, uh, savings. So you're offsetting it in one place uh, for another. And, and so, you know, that's an idea to tap into. There's a lot of different programs around that. Um, and the other big one is speed uh, and mm. how fast you go. So um, obviously, if you got the lead foot, man, you're burning more. <laughs> You are burning more. Your your vehicle tends to sort of meet its uh, optimal fuel efficiency between 80 and 90 kilometers an hour. Um, and so, you know, let's face it, the vehicles are very comfortable today. Sometimes we don't even realize how fast we're going. Um, and highway speeds are 100 and in some areas in Ontario, 110. Uh, but if you can keep your your speeds on the lower end, even you know if it's if it's decent weather conditions, not slippery or rainy, you might want to get into the habit of using your cruise control to keep your speed at the the same uh, for long distances, and and that that will help you as well. Uh, we're almost out of time here, Teresa. But are, are you? What are you hearing from members as far as are they changing travel plans? Are they alternating plans because of the high fuel prices? You know, there, there is quite a bit of concern about the high, the, the price of, of gas. Uh, we did a survey late last year. Gas prices weren't as high. Uh, and we had the majority of, of people responding to that survey saying it is impacting their driving. Uh, and I, I would venture that if we took that survey today, you know, we had 29% back then saying it wasn't impacting their driving at all. I would think that that would change today if we did that same survey. Some people don't have a choice. So they are looking for these habits and tips um, and tricks, uh, and t you know, trip planning, uh, being more mindful. Can they go shop locally for, you know, milk and eggs versus uh, doing every trip in a car and, and you know, loading up on stuff? Um, it, it is impacting, you know, people's behavior and, and there, there's a significant concern. We've got a lot of people looking at different vehicles, but those are hard to find too right now if you're looking to switch yeah. a car. Very true. Uh, Teresa D. Felice with us, Assistant Vice President, Government and Community Relations with CAA Central Ontario, trying to give us some tips on uh, at least making your gas go a little farther and trying to save some money this summer. Teresa, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you. You too. Scott Thompson isn't worried about ruffling a few feathers. In fact, he kind of likes it. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. It is 450. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Matt Taylor on the board. Will Erskine in the cloud. Diana and Dave in the newsroom watching the world spin. Jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221. Star 900. 
800-900-9900 on your cell. Always looking for your last word. Uh, interesting partnership with Hamilton Police and Wilfrid Laurier University for a new virtual reality training in response to uh, mental health crisis. So uh, obviously creating scenarios and then uh, dealing with them virtually uh, in, in training for real-life situations. Let's bring in Jennifer Lavoie, Associate Professor, Department of Psychology and Criminology, graduate program coordinator in criminology at Wilfrid Laurier and with us now. Uh, thanks so much for the time, Jennifer. Hope you're well. I'm well, Scott. Thank you for having me. So tell us about this program. How did this all come about? Oh, well, this program is about six years in, in the making. Um, it's, a, it's really a, a true collaboration with a, a partner, uh, Dr. Natalie Alvarez from the Toronto Metropolitan University. Um, and Yvonne Kendil, she's at UVic now, but uh, was originally at, at Brock. And we got together about six years ago and, and wanted to really uh, take a look at police training with respect to mental health crisis. Uh, we read a number of, of inquests um, and reports that were really calling for a lot of change around de-escalation and police training uh, on mental health crisis. And from there, we started a, a large collaboration with um, subject matter experts from really all over Ontario uh, people with experience with mental illness, clinicians, advocates, nurses, forensic psychologists, Indigenous cultural safety and anti-discrimination experts, uh, all coming together to uh, to bring around um, you know, what their experiences were and, and best practices. And in partnership with police, uh, we're able to develop a, a program that we think is, is very relevant and uh, could help officers improve how they respond to people in mental health crisis. So I'm guessing the idea here is to create a scenario virtually in a virtual reality setting and and then teaching officers how to respond to what they're seeing. Is that accurate? That's right. Yeah. The What we've done is it, it's a hybrid approach where officers um, take a, some online module training to get a sense of uh, um, the lay of the, the land. What, what is de-escalation and why are police officers being called these kinds of uh, situations on, on the road. And then from there, what we've done is instead of officers sitting in, um, in a lecture and, you know, caring about mental health, what we've done is we have created scenarios where we can impart that knowledge while officers are on their feet. So we've created three different kinds of mental health crisis scenarios that officers are able to unpack. And then they hear from subject matter experts have recorded um videos from you know, clinicians or people who live with particular mental conditions who share what their experiences are and what the best practices are for officers who are meant to, to deal these kinds of, of situations. And then from there, we create traditional shorter scenarios that are used assessment. So officers get a real chance to uh, have the experiential learning opportunity be able to practice and rehearse and reinforce de-escalation strategies. Man, you could use this for almost anything. You could use this to train all kinds of industry, could you not? I agree. It's, uh, you know, the more we talk with our community partners, we can see all kinds of, of ways where uh, you can really uh, increase mental health awareness and, and knowledge across all kinds of, uh, of, of disciplines, not just in, in policing, but... Um, you know, mental health crisis response units that, that have nurses, for, for example, or, uh, you know, campus security, uh, you know, municipal law enforcement, or, or even, even further, really. 
And talk about uh, partnering with the Hamilton police on this. And and what's the response been dealing with uh, police services? It's, I have to say, it's, it's been really, really excellent. It's uh, As I said, this was six years in, in the making. About a year ago, we moved into VR as a result of the, the pandemic. It really was an opportunity to mm. find a way to build out scenario-based training and make it more accessible and scalable for for uh, police services. So since we've launched the, which hasn't been that long, it's only been about two weeks since we've launched the, the training, we've heard from many municipal police services from across the province who are uh, really excited. It was Hamilton, though, that, that stepped up and said that they wanted to uh, to really embrace it and, and adopt it. And, and so today is the, the launch, and uh, I don't think they could be more enthusiastic. They've been wonderful partners. You know, it's interesting. I remember a few years ago talking about the Hamilton Police Service and them perhaps taking mental health experts with them on certain calls where this, you know, uh, where they would perhaps be needed and need the advice. But this is even this is this is a great idea. What a great way to get ahead of all of this. I mean, Hamilton really have been very progressive with a lot of their mental health programming for their police officers. And they've found ways to use the, this VR training uh, with with other training that they, that they offer there, I think on the cusp of launching a great number of services to the community that relate to to mental health and really training, especially new recruits coming out of the you know basic uh, clinical training at, at the OPC and uh, really preparing officers right from the very beginning for what they're going to see on the road is what Hamilton uh, really is all about, and I, I could support more. Hamilton Police partnering with Wilfrid Laurier University for a new virtual reality training for response to mental health crisis. Jennifer Lavoie with us, Associate Professor, Department of Psychology and Criminology at Wilfrid Laurier University. Jennifer, great idea. Thanks for the time. Be well. Good luck with this. Thank you much, Scott. It is 510. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Matt Taylor behind the board, spinning the beaches uh, tonight at Hamilton Place rescheduled show. The party has begun. Uh, your concert sneak preview. Feel free to jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221. Start 9900 uh, on your cell. Lots going on uh, in the city. Two-way traffic. Uh, lots of chatter. Two-way traffic coming back to Main Street. Uh, been there since October of 1956 when 43K of downtown was converted converted to one-way streets. Different city now than it was then. Uh, the industrial core, probably four or five times the employees that it is now or has now, uh, which obviously the, the main objective in 1956 is get everybody the heck out of Dodge and back to suburbia as fast as they can. Um, the fastest they can part has gotten out of hand when you take some of the cars or a lot of those cars, uh, the heavy traffic that was once there, uh, away. And basically you've got, what, Four lane, two lane drag strip, depending upon which strip, which part of it you're on. So not surprised to see uh, that that will eventually uh, happen. Also locally, Friday the 13th, tomorrow, Port Dover. I think it's the only one this year. And obviously, uh, the, well, I think it still happened, sort of. <laughs> There's a drive-by uh, in the last couple of years, but the town not really uh, encouraging everybody to come out uh, in the last couple of years. So this year, I think uh, it's going to be uh, it's going to be a lot of people there, and they've actually closed the airspace 
over Port Dover for Friday the 13th, which is a drag because I was hoping to take my helicopter. You know, how you, how's a guy supposed to, I was going to take my helicopter down to the Petrocan, fill it up with about seven or $800 worth of gasoline and, uh, or jet fuel, whatever helicopters fly on. And I was going to take it to Port Dover, get there really, really quick, lickety split, get right over the crowds, right over the bikers, everybody. Uh, but no, I'm going to have to change my plans now. Uh, the flyover, the airspace over Port Dover is canceled. How are all the people going to get to Buffalo? How are people, all the people going to get to Buffalo air, airspace, like airport, when you know the rich people taking their helicopters over that we saw that during the pandemic? How are they going to get there if the airspace over Port Dover is closed? I don't get it. All right. Uh, so that's, uh, that's coming up tomorrow, and obviously we'll try to get somebody on the air from Port Dover and see what the uh, impact is. And also, Finland and Sweden, uh, Finland especially, uh, chomping at the bit to get into NATO, and apparently both countries, certainly Finland and Sweden, on its way in a couple of years to meeting their uh, commitments, their GDP, uh, the 2% commitment for uh, for being a member of NATO, which is something that, oddly enough, Canada hasn't even done yet. So what does it say when we're a convener and not a, um, a, a military power, as Foreign Affairs Minister Jolie would put it, and yet Finland Finland and Sweden are. These apparent neutral countries are now contributing more uh, uh, of their GDP than a percentage of their GDP than uh, what we are. So I'm not sure how long um, that position is going to stay the same. And, and, and it'll be interesting to see how other NATO countries react when Finland and Sweden jump in to get in. Now, obviously, this has Russia upset. I uh, don't know why. Geez, they try to take over Ukraine and end up pushing two other countries into the arms of NATO. So uh, we're going to have that discussion again coming up a little later on. Obviously, uh, this is not over and is going to continue on for a while. Also, the inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act by the government. We're going to talk about that with Phil Gursky, former CSIS analyst, uh, coming up shortly. And it seems that the RCMP said, uh, we didn't ask for this and we didn't need it in order to clear the blockades. And the RCP, RCMP also, and MPs asked for this to be removed. RCMP have said this was a police service failure on that of the uh, Ottawa Police Department. So uh, we'll have that chat coming up a little later on. Also, with what is going on in the world, this has sparked China. And now they are surrounding Taiwan with wartime drills. This is, these are just military exercises, but China very much trying to reclaim Taiwan the way that they have Hong Kong. And, you know, when you're flying the military planes over, the helicopters would have you and the seas full of ships. You can imagine how anxious the people of Taiwan are when you think of what happened in Ukraine. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. It is 520. I'm Scott Thompson. Matt Taylor uh, behind the board. By the way, looking for your last word. If you've got one in you, uh, you can call Matt, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. He'll record you for the end of the show. Feel free. You can also send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900chml.com. All right. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about uh, a few weeks ago the inquiry being called into the Emergencies Act. You might remember the Emergencies Act uh, being used during the Ottawa convoy protest in order to 
break things up, to move things along. And I'm not sure there's too many people that would argue by the time we got to week two and week three that, uh, yeah, something had to be done uh, because clearly uh, what was being done and the people that uh, were in charge of keeping control out of all of this had 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 failed miserably. So um, now we're hearing from RCMP as we get through this that uh, they didn't necessarily ask for this and, and it didn't really uh, or wasn't really needed to end the illegal blockades and also said that uh, the failure was with the police service. Uh, let's talk about that and other security issues. Phil Gursky with us, President of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa Security Program and a former thesis analyst. Phil, how are you? I hope well. I'm well, Scott. How are you today? I'm doing good. I want to throw you a side uh, curve here. Aside, uh, I'm going to T-bone you because I, I, we didn't tell you we were going to talk about this. But your thoughts on the chatter of uh, Finland and Sweden wanting to join NATO? Well, 100%. I mean, you know, Putin's invasion of Ukraine was to apparently cow us into submission. And what he's achieved is the exact opposite. He's got Finland and, and Sweden who have been neutral pretty well since the end of the Second World War. Although, Part of the Western ambit, Scott. I've been to both countries many times to talk to the security services. They're on our side, and now they want to join NATO, which is exactly what Putin didn't want. So I guess Mr. Putin might want to ask himself whether the next movie makes is going to have the same uh, results that he did, what didn't want in the first place. Uh, obviously, we remember Zelensky, President Zelensky, way back when, saying you know, Ukraine wasn't interested in that, hoping that Putin would, would back down a bit. That hasn't happened. Where does this leave Ukraine after all of this? Oh, wow. What a $64 million question. I mean, I am half Ukrainian heritage. My mother was transferred from Ukraine, so I feel this personally. Heba uh, hurts, Scott. I don't know where this is going to end. I mean, does Putin look for a climb down that he can get out of this and say he achieved victory? I have no idea. But uh, based on what I'm seeing in events on the ground, it seems that the, the war that he imposed on Ukraine is showing no signs of ebbing. And so I feel for the Ukrainian people. I don't think there's an easy answer to it. It's, that's, the ball's in Putin's court, Scott. He can end this tomorrow. And does he choose to? Under what circumstances? I guess we're going to have to wait and see. All right, last question on this. Finland and Sweden uh, already qualifying. Sweden will in a couple of years as far as hitting the 2% GDP. Uh, so they're willing to meet their, their NATO commitments. What does that say about Canada? Ooh, it says a lot. You know, if you're Finland or Sweden, you're basically up against a very aggressive Russia. So hitting 2% is a no-brainer for them because they yeah. simply have to. Maybe we here in Canada, we're thousands of kilometers away. We've got the Americans as our neighbors. We've relied on them since the Second World War. Maybe it's not as an urgent issue for us, but we should meet the bare minimum. That's what the other NATO partners are trying to do. What about the Arctic? Well, exactly. I mean, and, you know, we've had cooperation with our Nordic partners, uh, you know, for years, and then that may be the, one of the new future ventures of war campaigns. And so for us not to be pulling our weight there is actually, it's against our own interests as Canadians, I would argue. All right, let's go to the Emergencies Act in Ottawa and the convoy and such. Uh, the head of the RCMP coming out and saying basically that uh, we didn't need this, we didn't ask for this, we didn't need it to end the blockades. Uh, and, and put the blame, it appears, on the on the Ottawa Police Service. Your thoughts on what we're seeing so far? Well, you know, Commissioner Lucky did say that, you know, once they got the powers, they could use them. Well, duh, of course they're going to use the powers that the government grants it, but this is purely a political issue from day one, Scott. I mean, look, look, at when was the last time the Equivalent Act, which was the old, remember the old War Measures Act? You and yeah. I are old enough probably to remember the days those, that was around when Trudeau's father brought it in 1970. That was brought in during a terrorist campaign by the FLQ who were killing people in Quebec and setting off hundreds of bombs in Montreal. That was an emergency. What happened in Ottawa, with all due respect, it was a disruption. It was inconvenient. 
Did it require the Emergency Act to be to be invoked? I said so at the time in op-ed, Ottawa Citizen. It didn't. It appears the commissioner may you know, also agree with me. So this was a political decision to make a statement. This was not required to end the blockade in Ottawa. What about the express concern over extremism and CSIS? And there's no question. And, and if you remember back then, CSIS did warn the government in advance. It had intelligence suggesting that some actors who may, in fact, espouse violent views may hang on, you know, sort of attach themselves to the Freedom Convoy, the blockade, etc. That intelligence was there. This is not an intelligence failure. Now, the problem is, and, this is, you know, we, you and I have talked about this many times, Scott, the vast majority of people that say they're going to do something never do it because they're cowards or they're incompetent. So I can't say there, was, there wasn't going to be any violence. But, yeah, I mean, they had the people in place, and I'm sure that the people were identified to be monitored and to be surveilled. And if they started doing things that broke the law, they'd be arrested. It's a simple You don't require, I mean, CSIS works without the Emergency Act every day of their, of, of their working lives. We don't require this legislation to do our jobs. So will we get answers into this inquiry without more uh, transparency from the federal government? I doubt it. Uh, At the end of the day, the prime minister has to respond to Canadians. What was it about this particular incident that led him to invoke a very draconian measure? If you you read, Scott, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association said there's no justification for this. This is a a very powerful piece of legislation that essentially almost, I mean, it, it takes away civil liberties for Canadians. And it has to be the most dire of circumstances under which it is announced, like in 1970 during the FLQ crisis. So a lot of answers have to come from the Liberal government, this one, I would say. So what about, uh, obviously, during the first few days, Emergency Act not, e- uh, not needed, but the time we got to week two, week three, when, these, when they were hunkered down, then we needed it to, to, to clear what had established after three weeks. Eventually, they would have frittered away. The, po- the point yeah. is that people get bored. They're not achieving yeah. what, you know, there's no grand revolution. The government journal is not dissolving the government. Trudeau's not going to go home. I mean, you know, they're going to realize that this is getting them nowhere. And, they, you know, the bouncy castles will lose their air, and then family matters will come up, and these truckers have to make deliveries. So it would have ended eventually anyway. This was just a premature decision by the government to end it, when it on its terms when it wanted to end. And that, that's my humble opinion, anyhow. Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow. Oh, man, I've just lost my thing. Distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa Security Program, former CSIS analyst. I got it all in. Thanks, Phil. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. It is 536. I'm Scott Thompson. Matt Taylor behind the board in the cloud. Will Erskine and in the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Looking for your last word, as always, at 905-645-3221. Star 9900 on your cell. You can always send us a note at scottthompson at 900chml.com. All right. Uh, China surrounding Taiwan as part of military drills and counterfeit toonies from China. Let's bring in Gordon Holden, Director Emeritus of the China Institute, Professor of Political Science, University of Alberta, with us now. Gordon, as always, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am well, and thank you, Scott. Uh, first of all, Gordon, I don't know if we uh, teed this up with you or not, but uh, your take, and is there anything to this story about counterfeit toonies in China, uh, from China coming here? What can you tell us about this? Uh, what's going on? Well, it's an extraordinary story. I mean, normally when you have a counterfeit, it's like minimum a $20 bill, right? It's mm. the hassle to produce something uh, that is fake and uh, that's passable as the real thing would normally require a large amount of money. But I take it for seriously because the, uh, the media reporting is, is directly quoting the RCMP um, who are saying there have been thousands of these, perhaps 10,000 or more who've come into the country. Uh, China has a 
extraordinarily capable manufacturing capacity. Um, and that can be anything. There's no shortage of Chinese knockoffs over the years of things like Gucci purses and all those sort of things that, uh, uh, and briefcases and clothing that um, much of which people can't feel they can afford the real thing. So they, they buy the fakes, which is bad on all signs of fronts. But counterfeiting is a directly criminal act. Uh, it doesn't necessarily surprise me. There'd be lots of small-scale shops in a, a hundred Chinese cities where this could be done. I'm confident that the Chinese authorities don't approve or know of it, but there's a torrent of goods that come to Canada in shipping containers uh, every single day. And quite frankly, um, 10,000, even 100,000 coins uh, would not be um, easily picked up. We've heard lots lately about uh, money laundering with uh, going on with Russian oligarchs, or, or you know, same thing through uh, the Chinese Communist Party here in Canada. Is this considered money laundering? Is that what this is? Another way of doing that? I, I'm not sure. I suppose you could call it that. You're in effect bringing in something. Normally, though, what you have with money laundering is bringing in real money, yeah, um, churning it through some enterprise, and then came out with money that doesn't have any association of where it came from. So I'd say it's not quite, but it's clearly criminal and uh, needs to be stopped. Apparently the coins are very high quality and uh, uh, that sort of thing cuts at the confidence of our, our population in their in their currency and obviously represents a loss to the uh, uh, government of Canada and the people if something that costs maybe 25 cents can be turned into $2 here. All right. Uh, China surrounding Taiwan, part of wartime military exercises, they say. We certainly know the story between China and Taiwan and, and, and China slowly creeping in and around it. Many thinking the same thing that happened to Hong Kong could happen to Taiwan. Uh, what about the timing of all of this? Is this all as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Is that, what's, is that part of this in any way? I think that the Russian invasion of Ukraine has heightened Chinese sensibility vis-a-vis Taiwan. Um, I think that the Chinese military is very carefully studying what went wrong in the Russian invasion, and much did go wrong, of course, and thinking about how they might do things better. I think that process will take some time. So I don't think we're looking at an imminent invasion. But there are other factors that could have set off this recent round of uh, of, of tests. There's a U.S. carrier group in the Philippine Sea. Uh, there is a revision of the um, description of Taiwan's political status on the U.S. State Department website. Seems like a pretty obscure thing, but key phrases such as U.S. opposes uh, Taiwan independence is gone. Um, as well, you have um, nervousness, resentment still over the visit by the um, the, uh, by Nancy Pelosi from the uh, U.S. Congress to Taiwan recently. Exercises like this take some time to plan. So I think it would be things that happened um, several weeks ago, um, and that could well be partially uh, generated by the invasion. But there's lots of friction between the U.S. and, and, uh, and uh, China, and the uh, Communist Party hierarchy has not told me precisely why they did this now, obviously. S- so is this about the military experience or is this about cage rattling around Taiwan? Well, I think that um, 
uh, the military experience, you're, you're sensing, I mean, the, the training and preparing for an eventual mm -hmm. invasion. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you, it's one thing to have the equipment, and they are, and PRA, PLA's Navy is getting more kit. They recently launched a second huge amphibious uh, assault vessel. To pair of them now would be really crucial in any invasion attempts. But you need to exercise your sailors and your airmen. Uh, you need to have them up and um, traveling circuits would roughly approximate what would be done in case of invasion. Of course, in the case of invasion, you wouldn't be dealing with what you have here, 20, 15, 20, 30 uh, aircraft. You'd be dealing with hundreds. It would be on a whole magnitude of scale. But I suppose you could rotate the exercises involving different units, etc., in order to hone them. But this is large enough to be significant, but doesn't not large enough to be an invasion in itself. They can't suddenly head ashore with forces right. of that size. Taiwan Strait is very wide, varies between about 130, 180 kilometers. Uh, we would see, certainly U.S. satellites would see not just an armada departing, um, uh, but the preparations, large scale onshore of the necessary aircraft, missile batteries, etc., preparing for an invasion. But enough of this, um, it's enough to make Taiwanese nervous, obviously, and enough to show, to demonstrate as if we didn't already know that uh, uh, the PLA Navy and the PLA Air Force and their army um, are making preparations for a possible invasion at some point in the future. So what is the future of Taiwan? Is it just a matter of time before it's like Hong Kong? Well, the big difference there, I suppose, is that um, Hong Kong was uh, already part of the People's Republic of China since 1997, right. mm -hmm. and they gradually turned the screws. And then when the demonstration started, the hardliners, in my view, used that excuse to ramp things up. Taiwan is de facto independent, has its own military, its own defense capacity. It has a semi-alliance with the United States, a U.S. commitment, although not rock solid, to defend Taiwan. And it's a bigger, much bigger place. Instead of 7 or 8 million, 8 million, let's say, in Hong Kong, you've got 23 in Hong Kong. But look at this as a sobering statistic. Um, the population of Ukraine is, well, Russia is 3.5 times larger in population than Ukraine. China is, PRC, is 60 times larger than the population yeah. of Taiwan, hmm. with 10 times the, the um, uh, population. And the other statistics are just as dismal. So deterring an invasion would be very tough. I really hope that to me, the crucial thing is to deter the invasion because once launched, uh, it promises to be a very bloody affair and with no certain outcome. Uh, reinforcing Taiwan would not be as easy. Ukraine has got a couple NATO borders, material, war materials flowing in. Russia is afraid of attacking NATO, at least until now. In the case of Taiwan, getting kit in, into, a, um, a, into a Taiwan where the airfields are being hollowed out uh, that would be very tough. So to me, the secret is somehow deterring China, because once into that conflict, uh, we're into a big war, I'm afraid. That was my next question, and we're, we're almost out of time. But just quickly, uh, if that does happen, how does the rest of the world react? Well, there's no Asian NATO. So the, the it would rest largely on the shoulders of the United States. Conceivably, um, Japan might join in, um, perhaps even... Um, UK, Australia would send forces, but the distances are vast uh, and there's a lot of uncertainty. The US has not got an absolute ironclad promise 
to help Taiwan. I think it would depend on the circumstances. Gordon Holden with us, Director Emeritus, uh, the China Institute, Professor of Political Science, University of Alberta. Always fascinating, Gordon. Thanks for the time. Be well. I shall. Thank you very much, Scott. What matters to you, what matters to Hamilton, matters to Scott. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. It is 5.50. I'm Scott Thompson. And Matt Taylor is behind the board. You wanted the last word, call him, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. The phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Uh, we've talked about this issue a lot of late, and I'm going to keep hammering it because it, it, it kind of makes me angry. It makes me angry that I had a political pundit on today. Um, not his fault. I mean, he's doing what he's doing uh and 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 noted that uh all basically all three main political parties have uh have acknowledged that there is some sort of infrastructure deficit uh whether it's housing whether it's this that or the other uh, which i find absolutely astounding considering um for the last 5 10 15 20 25 years nobody's really been interested in solving this problem nobody's been interested in even having the discussion all we hear is anything that's building that isn't in an infield is urban sprawl um and 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 nobody we shouldn't be doing that we shouldn't be we shouldn't be building homes we should be stacking people up which you know i get that i i totally understand and we should certainly make uh, take advantage of those of those green in or those infields rather um that inf- infield development but at the end of the day um what do you how do you define urban sprawl is that building new homes is that building new developments where do you go from there uh, do we have ian all right uh so what's the next step because nobody wants to build and now we have all three political parties saying you know what we got an issue and we got to address this uh we've talked about it a lot let's bring in ian lee again associate professor sprott school of business carlton university ian thanks for the time i hope you're well i'm doing very well thanks very much scott uh, Ian, I had a uh, political pundit on earlier on, and we were talking about the election campaign, and somehow it came up that uh, basically all three political main political parties had decided that there was uh, an infrastructure deficit of some sort and that we really needed to push this forward. And I kind of shook my head, and it actually made me a little angry because I'm old enough to know that you know, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago, that was not the that was not the the call if anything it was stop it stop it so how can people justify this now how can parties justify this now after condemning it for so long um in my view uh they um and i'm i'm not trying to be trendy here i'm blaming the elites or let's just call them the decision makers of public policy the t- the political parties but i think they've been in denial there's a fundamental contradiction that's been going on in our country for 10, 15, 20 years. Um, on the one hand, there is a strong consensus, and I am one of them, that strongly supports immigration. We need more immigration. And I don't mean a couple of thousand a year. We agreed for a long, long time, a quarter of a million a year, and now we're saying, no, 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 we need 400,000. Some people are saying 500,000. That's not the contradiction. 
The contradiction was over that same period of time, over the last 15, 20, 25 years, this ethos of, I'll call it, anti-growth emerged, anti-infrastructure, anti-building suburbs, new suburban tracks. And, you know, if you're going to bring in 400 or 500,000 a year, Ottawa, my city where I live, is a million people. If we're going to bring in one new Ottawa into Canada every year, then you've got to build more roads. You've got to build more houses. You have to build more fire stations. You have to build more hospitals. You have to build more schools. You have to build everything because we are growing. And we've been growing from the very origins of the country, but especially after the Second World War. And and yet, I listen to councillors across the country in the GTA, Hamilton, my own city, Ottawa, Vancouver, and they're, you know, it's as if they're, they've just flown in from Mars or from outer space. They're in complete abject and comprehensive denial of the fact that we are growing uh, very significantly. And with growth, there are trade-offs. And one of the trade-offs is you got to build more houses. You have to so build what more is- roads. So what is the definition of urban sprawl, um, and what isn't urban sprawl? Urban what development sprawl. isn't urban sprawl? Is that all, I mean, obviously it's all infield development, but how do you build anything and it not be urban sprawl, other than, That's you know, uh, I have an apartment said, Scott, in a parking lot? Scott, I've been very fortunate because I've traveled around the world a lot uh, through teaching contracts. I've been to London, England many times, to Paris, many of the cities. And I instinctively go to the what they call the old town. The old town is the old historical core of the city. Could be Moscow, could be Kiev, it could be Warsaw, I've taught there, uh, could be Ottawa. Uh, And where am I going with this story? The historical core, especially in an old city like London, 2000 plus years old, is just a tiny little, you know, maybe a kilometer square in the downtown. And then you look at modern London or modern Paris or modern Moscow or modern Toronto. And the city just kept growing and growing around the core. Everybody knows this. This is not a secret, people. You don't need to do an advanced degree in urban planning to understand that as the city expands, any city anywhere, you grow outward. And and they in this this ethos that came out of the anti-growth and out of the environmental movement started to pejoratively rebrand population growth as urban sprawl. Because I mean, who on earth is against sprawl? It's it's such it's such an ugly word. It sounds like a horrible thing. Who is going to advocate <laughs> for sprawling all over anything? And yet what they're doing is using a clever use of words to rebrand in a very negative way population growth. But even that doesn't capture it, Scott, because population growth increasingly is overwhelmingly exclusively immigration. In fact, Stats Canada has said going forward, we are only going to grow through immigration. So what I am suggesting to you, and I've suggested this before the city council, which made them very uncomfortable and very upset with me when I testified before the committee last year on this subject, I said, this is a form of structural racism. I did not accuse them of being racist. Unconscious bias says you're not even aware of your bias. That's what structural racism is. Why do I say structural racism? Because 70% of all of our immigrants are non-Caucasian. So we're bringing in 400,000, probably soon to go to a half a million, and we refuse to build the infrastructure and the housing to support them. We're doing what they've done in Europe for years horribly and putting them into tall immigrant ghettos. 
And that is not mm. the way we have been so successful and at, at integrating immigrants into Canada. They have joined the Canadian community at the Burbs, in the Burbs, with young people, where I bought my first home in 1976 on the very edges, because you could afford, you could have your dream in the sun, and that was where you could afford, buy something affordable. And now this idea is, they said, oh no, we're going to densify. Well, they want to densify in the urban core. The urban core in every city, everywhere I've looked, Canada, US, UK, doesn't matter. The urban core is always the most expensive land and housing. So to say you're going to build uh, affordable housing for immigrants in the downtown core of Toronto or Ottawa, where it's unbelievably expensive, is just, it is snake oil, Scott. It is snake oil they're selling because of their ideological commitment, their belief that uh, growing uh, the city ex concentrically from the, from the downtown expanding outward is causing or significantly contributing to global warming. Well, can I get one more point in on this? Because I Quickly. think they've... Uh, uh, very quickly, if you look at global warming, it is down to the granular level of individual people, you, me, other people, who has the biggest footprint, the people that make the most amount of money, because you spend your money on stuff, stuff is made with energy, 80%, 75% of all things in Canada are made with fossil fuels, people that make more money spend buy more stuff, take more trips, and have a bigger footprint, where are the highest average incomes in Canada? In the urban downtown, in Rosedale, mm. in the beaches, in the Glebe in Ottawa. And so they're saying, mm. don't go to the suburbs because you're going to contribute to global warming. It's the other way around. Ian Lee with his associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Fascinating discussion, Ian. Thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. We are plumb out of time. Have yourself a great night. We'll catch you back tomorrow. Keep right except to pass. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.